0: let's go to john chapter one we started with the first few verses called the prologue last week so now we'll do john chapters one and two and move at two chapters a week from here on so you can expect the two the typical two chapter a week pace so we're going to do chapters one and two And while you go there, the theme we're looking at as we look through John is John's own theme, live eternally. John writes his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's from chapter 20, verse 31, his purpose statement. I go on to write in the bulletin about what this life is. It says this life is life. Zoe in Greek, Z-O-E, Zoe. It differs from bios life or biological life. Zoe is God's life. It is the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something attainable only in heaven, John dares us to find that life in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now a piece of himself within us, a bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but life before death. And that's what John is presenting to us in Jesus, that he comes and brings the life of God, the Zoe life, the begotten of God, not of flesh and blood, but eternally existing life and brings it in Jesus in flesh and blood to the human world. And whoever believes in Jesus gets to receive that eternal life, that Zoe life of God. And we looked at that last week and we're going to keep seeing it as it comes up throughout the gospel of John. Now, John is the fourth gospel. He also wrote the latest of the four he's writing some 60 years after Jesus. And he is reflecting upon 60 years of teaching the church, thinking about the life of Jesus, and also reading the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who had been written. And he says, okay, I need to leave one more thing to be said, and that's as I see the church growing, we cannot forget the life and spirit we have in Jesus. Because as as organizations grow, they become systematized, and systems often do not leave room for the spirit. And John wanted Christianity to remember that Jesus is not a theological idea. He's not a religious icon. He is a person. And he came in flesh and blood so that we could be the friends, the sons and daughters of God. And so he writes with a very different angle than the other three Gospels. No, it's not a contradiction to those Gospels. It's an author who says, I've read the other three. I have another thing to say. So that's how we read John. And the eagle is pictured for us because uh, the early church fathers saw John as representing an eagle. The way that Jesus was eternally existing with the Father. And as an eagle swoops down from the heavens to earth. And uh, Jesus came down to the earth. And then the eagle swoops back up. Just a nice, fluid, majestic motion. Jesus comes down to us. And the pinpoint of that V-shape, the eagle going down and up. The pinpoint of that V-shape is where our story is. And so that's the eagle, and John's gospel. So we're going to pick up now in verse 19 of chapter 1 with John the baptizer. Often called John the Baptist, but let's not confuse him as a Baptist. Those weren't denominations back then. So he's the baptizer. Um, In verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No, You ever talk to those people that just never give you what you know? They you know they know what you want to know, but they're just not giving it to you? One word answers. John's playing with them. So they said to them, Uh Who are you? You're a difficult conversationalist. (laughs) Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then John talks. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, that's Isaiah chapter 40. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So here we're introduced to John the baptizer. We hear his first message. He's going to give one more after this. This first message is about the identity of John himself. And people are confused. Who are you? Now, in the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus seven times say, I am. And there's going to be a metaphor attached to that I am statement. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world and so forth. Um, But with John, we're going to start off with three I am nots. I am not the Christ, which is Greek for Messiah, I am not that promised king to come. I am not Elijah, whom the Jews looked forward to coming as a preface to the Messiah. And I am not the prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy uh, that was to come. I am neither of those things. John's identity is established. What he does say is that he is simply a baptizer with water, preparing people for the way of the Lord. And in that, he says that I am not even worthy of untying the strap, the sandal strap of the Messiah. What John is saying is that I am not even worthy to be his slave. Because slaves were often seen carrying the sandals of their masters. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to... Untie his sandal, let alone carry it. A slave is not even a worthy enough position for me with this guy who's coming after me who's so much greater than I. So we see John's view of himself. One of the things I do like about John is as he's asked these questions, he's being asked by people who were sent by other powers, right? The religious leaders of Jerusalem, they, they, they catch wind of a revival happening out in the wilderness. In other words, outside of their realm of control, and they're nervous. What's going on? There's religious revival without our input, without our controlling it. Rome might catch wind of this and think it's some sort of revolt against the government. And so um, they have to send a delegation. Go tell us who John is. Now, John smells what's happening and it's so funny because we see this happening to this day god is using somebody somebody's doing something and the the entourage comes and they want answers they want a label who are you give us a simple label are you a calvinist are you one of those stinking calvinists are you one of those stinking arminius are, arminianism are you are you one of those rapture people are you like they want to come they like want to fit us into some category and john here they're just like so are you the prophet are you the messiah and he's like no no i don't answer these labels are dumb and what what are you then and john doesn't say well i hold to this theology i came from this schooling i followed this rabbi i go to this church i'm of this denomination none of that john just says you know what i don't even know what you guys are talking about i'm just somebody who's making straight the way of the lord for other people are you elijah no But what's funny is that Jesus actually in the other gospels said that John is Elijah. Do you see what's happening? John is so focused on his mission. He doesn't even know that he is Elijah, that he is the one to forego Jesus. He's just like, look, I'm just somebody who's trying to make sense of God in the messy lives of other people. Call me what you want, what you think I am. I'm just here doing this. And I love his response. And it reminds me that we need to be quicker not to label ourselves or others, but to see ourselves rather in terms of roles, we have roles, not labels. And the distinction to me is important because labels, uh, foster dualistic thinking labels create the us versus them mentality. Well, you're that label. I'm this label. We therefore don't talk. (laughs) We have our separate camps, but roles have a participatory or a collaborative viewpoint. A role says, okay, we do this together. That's your part. This is my part. And I see John really not wanting to foster the dualistic thinking of the religious leaders. Like, I'm not going to put myself under that label. I just want to say that I am in this with you guys. And I want the people to know God. And I love that perspective on John. A couple of interesting points about him. Baptism. We're used to the idea. Like, you come to Jesus, you get baptized, like, woo, yay, conversion. Uh, The Jews didn't get baptized. Baptism was something Jews did to Gentiles when Gentiles believed in their God. So baptism was reserved for converted pagans. So with that context in mind, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he's basically calling his Jewish brothers and sisters pagans and saying, you guys need to get right with God. The people who are the people of God are not living like the people of God. And that's what he's basically saying. You're pagans. Come get baptized. So they have to humbly submit to like, we are living like Gentiles and we need to be baptized. It's like this new conversion that would have been very humbling for the Jews. And so that's one interesting thing we see about what he's doing is that he's really calling people to wake up, that they need to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus. They need to realize that they have needs in their lives that are not being met. And by coming to this baptism, they're recognizing there is something we're waiting for and we haven't found it yet. And so we are getting ready by acknowledging through the baptism. I haven't had my life mastered yet, even though I'm one of the chosen people of God. I'm not mastered yet. I'm looking for something more. And as John is doing that, getting the people ready for Jesus, we haven't even really met him yet in this book. We need to get our hearts ready, too. And we need to not sit back and say, well, of course, I'm one of God's people. I'm in church. We need to realize that God often needs even Christians to have conversions. And I'm not saying necessarily that you're going to go to hell or heaven, depending on that. No, conversion is simply a change. It's a change. And Christians need to change. Especially in our current cultural climate, the church has not been very effective. And we're very judgmental. And we love labels. And we're very dualistic in our thinking we need change too. We must prepare our hearts for the work of Jesus rather than prepare him for our church service. Jesus, we got these songs ready. Come and bless it. Come be with us. No, he's inviting us to his table, to his wedding banquet. Well, other thing is that you see in verse 28 that these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Interesting to note that Bethany is on... The east side of the Jordan River. In other words, they're going from Palestine across the Jordan River out to what used to be the wilderness in their wilderness wanderings of Exodus to meet John, hear his words, get baptized and reenter their so-called promised land. So what John's doing is he's calling Israel out back to reenact their wilderness wanderings and to recross the Jordan River as Joshua led the Israelites over the Jordan River to re-inherit their promised land. So their whole conversion is, you know what, it's time to actually live like the people of God. We're going to re enter our land and be a blessing to it, not a cursing to it. So it's an amazing picture as this is preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus, our new Joshua, leading us to the truest promised land of eternal life. He is going to go the same route. And that's what Jesus is for us. That's where he's leading us. Um, Let's move on to his next message. So the first one was about John's identity. This one's about Jesus's identity. 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Cool note, real quick, little footnote. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great 18th century preacher or 1800s preacher in England, he was once before they had amplification. And he was packing his church out so much that he often went to the theaters in society to go and do his evangelistic messages. And he went one day to go test how loud his voice needed to project, test the facility. And he was practicing the text he would preach, which was this text. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's nobody in the building. He's just practicing to see, you know, how his voice would carry in the room. And he kept reciting the verse over and over. Behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb. And suddenly, out of a closet came the janitor... And said, sir, I want to be a Christian. <laughs> because he just is simply repeating that verse over and over. Powerful verse. Anyways, end the footnote. Has absolutely nothing to do with the interpretation of it. Um, verse 30 says, this is he, John, saying about Jesus. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Wow, was a powerful introductory message. Here he comes. This is who he is. Now, the Lamb of God echoes back to the Passover lamb in Exodus. That is, Israel is leaving Egypt. The lamb was put, the blood lamb was put on the doorposts to protect the Israelites from the angel of death. They ate the lamb and then they left Egypt and went on their way to the promised land. Um, so John is hearkening that image and applying Jesus to that. Uh, also notice he has his emphasis on the spirit. He saw the spirit descending on Jesus. This would have been momentous for the people listening because in the Jewish belief up to this point, the Holy Spirit has not been active for 400 years, that the Holy Spirit stopped his active work on the earth with the last of the prophets And when he says that he saw the spirit descending on Jesus, it suddenly announced something. God's on the move again. Things are going to change. The spirit has returned to work in the lives of human beings. Something which the Jews associated with the coming of their Messiah. That the messianic age, the time the Messiah comes and rules Israel, would be marked by the return of the Holy Spirit. So when John says, I saw the spirit descending upon him, the people are excited because God is pouring his spirit out again. This is going to be like the golden age. And so they're excited. But then in verse 35, we turn the table now to Jesus. John has done his job. There he is, the Lamb of God. And now people are going to start to follow him. So verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So John uh, is totally fine with this. We don't see him holding a grudge. What? You're following Jesus now? You're leaving me to follow Jesus? Well, I'll show that guy. I'll out-preach him. I'll out-baptize him. We're going to see this come up in John again later. But John the Baptist, we see, is a man of a small ego. He's not ego-driven in what he's doing in life. He realizes that God gave him a mission and if people stop listening to him and stop following him, then his mission is coming to a close. He doesn't feel like he has to assert himself. Oh, I'm losing votes. I better start bashing the other person like we see in our politics. This is not how he works. He's a man led by the spirit, not by his ego. He doesn't need to prove himself. He knows who he is and he knows his calling. And that's a great test for us. What drives you in what you do? When people stop respecting you, when people s- stop thinking you're important, how do you react? Do you try to reassert yourself as even more important? Well, then you're probably not being led by the Spirit. But if we're able to say, all right, God has something else for me, then we can recognize that the Spirit's at work in your life. That's the ego test. How do we handle rejection? How do we handle people preferring other people over us? So Jesus turned to these new followers and said to them, now, no, these are the first words of Jesus in this gospel. What are you seeking? And that's John, the gospel writer's message to his readers through Jesus. As we enter into this book, we must ask ourselves, what? Are we seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, it it means teacher. Where are you staying? Or in other words, dwelling, abiding. He said to them, come and you will see. Two first sentences. What are you seeking? Whatever your answer is, his response is come and see. So God is not, Jesus is not a genie who responds to our dictatorship. What are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking for uh, fame and wealth. And he's like, oh, okay, here you go. No, Jesus is more about relationship. What are you seeking? I am seeking fulfillment. All right, come and see. In other words, I'm not just going to give it to you because you asked me of it. I want you to come with me and you're going to learn about fulfillment as you follow me. Come and see this idea of relationship. John wants us to do the same with Jesus, to come with him through his gospel and see what he's about. So then we see um, he gets some more followers. We see Simon, Peter's brother. Um, We see Simon joining. We found the Messiah. And in verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip followed him. Um, Philip found Nathaniel in verse 45 and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, as far as Californians, this is basically like saying, "Hey, we found the Messiah. He's down in Barstow." <laughs> and your laughter tells me you understand. Can anything good come out of Barstow? <laughs> so that's Nathaniel's reaction. But he meets Jesus, and Jesus has amazing words in verse forty-eight. Uh, Verse 48, Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus picks up the dream Joseph had as he's on the run from his brother Esau. Takes his sleep on the rock, right? In the wilderness. And he has a dream of a ladder and he sees the angels coming up and down. Well, Jesus basically just says, I was that ladder that Jacob saw. And the important thing here is that this isn't just a nice little idea of oh okay so through jesus you can climb up into heaven i think that jesus is actually saying something more along the lines of i am the connector of heaven and earth the way heaven and earth dwelt harmoniously as one sphere in the garden of eden hence we had zoe life zoe life is the life of heaven biological life is the life of earth back when they were together humans had zoe life but the divorce has been Pitiful. And we now die because we have biological life. But in Jesus, being from heaven and coming to earth, heaven and earth are touching down, Touch down right there in Jesus. And he is saying it is in me that you're going to see heaven and earth reunited. I'm in the business. You might remember from last week, John's about the new creation coming in and through Jesus. I am going to restore this old creation by infusing it with heaven and infusing it with Zoe life or eternal life. I'm going to infuse it with that. And Philip, You're going to see, or Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than me saying, I saw you under a fig tree, because you're going to start to see heaven on earth. And we're going to actually see that in the very next verse. We're going to start to see these greater things starting to happen. So, chapter 2, verse 1 is where Jesus turns water into wine, which we will come back to in our application section. So, hold on, don't leave. Moving on to verse 13, we see this. Chapter 2, verse 13, that is. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered what was written zeal for your house will consume me what is going on everybody's thinking it's a nice passover holiday this is basically their day of independence um although they're not free right now but they go and they celebrate when god used to deliver them from egypt and they're celebrating and they're coming to the temple everybody's ready for a nice festival and in comes jesus and suddenly they hear shouting and they hear panic, and they hear the bleeding of goats and lambs and pigeons flying everywhere. And out of the doors, you can imagine you're coming up with your kids, right? Let's go worship God. And <laughs> you're coming up the steps, and out come animals and people running, and coins are flying in the air. And your kids are like, I never knew the temple could look like this. This is awesome. And you're horrified. Kids don't look. You know, they, this is a chaotic scene. And then behind all this, you see this man with a whip, and he's like breathing like, you know, he's just, he's just he's angry about this and you're like what just happened what just happened and more than likely this was something that the populace agreed with on jesus why did they turn the temple of worship into a temple mall the passover became this market this idea the way we turn every holiday into a market in america and just, oh, we can make a dime off of Passover. Here's some Passover knickknacks. And you can get a lamb right here. Special price in the temple. Now, look, it was important and necessary to get animals for your sacrifices. Many people didn't want to travel with their animals. So it makes sense. You go to the temple and you buy it there. And you needed to convert your money because they had to use the Roman coins. And they couldn't use the Roman coins for the temple. So there was a conversion rate that was necessary. But what drove Jesus ballistic was not that they needed to buy these things. It was where these things were placed. And it spoke of priority. The market moved into the worship place. So that consumerism, capitalism, materialism. These things were now replacing worship. They were, or at least, they were a distraction to the worship. Further, where were these things located in the temple? They were, uh, historians tell us, in the outer courts of the Gentiles. So as you're coming in, you're first bombarded with this market, this mall. But worse, is that the place, the only place where Gentiles could go to worship God, has now been occupied with animals and here we see the money has prioritized people and this is what's sad to jesus that the people are not being taken care of we know that whatever displaces god is spiritual idolatry but we never think enough of what happens when we displace people Oh, don't displace God. Don't put things in place of God. That's an idol. We don't want to do that as Christians. But our society is full of displacing people too. And every time people are displaced, that's called social injustice. And we often don't think of social injustice as the equivalent to idolatry. But if we're told to love God and people, then we have equal problems right there. And here we see the marketplace is displacing the worship of God. So in a sense, the money's become their idol, but it's especially displacing people. And the Israelites who are to be a light to the nations are snuffing the light out for the nations. Because, well, it's more convenient if people have their exchanges here. Let us be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't displace people out of convenience. It's just easier that way. Our businesses in America are very good at prioritizing the project over the people. And people, there's no loyalty anymore. People are treated like rubbish. They're just slaves working for the big old corporations. And we need to be careful that we don't adopt the spirit of our culture. But that we remember that Jesus had a passion. He had a zeal to Put God in his place and people in their place as well. So, of course, the questions fly. Under what authority do you do these things? Who owned the temple, by the way? Historically, kings always owned temples. And in their immediate context, that would have been Herod the Great. He was the one building the temple for them, pouring money into it. He had the the, the jurisdiction over this area. And so Jesus comes in acting like a king, like he's in charge, like I can do what I want in this temple. (laughs) And so like, who are you to do this? And then Jesus has this confusing phrase, destroy this house, this building, (laughs) and in three days I will build it up. Destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days. Like, what? You can't build it up in three days. It's taking years for this thing to be built. And then John makes the comment. They didn't know he's talking about his body. And the disciples remembered this after Jesus rose from the dead that he talked about his body. Jesus saying, hey, this is the sign. This is what kind of authority I have. You're going to kill me, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to bring it back. And then you'll know. Then you'll know under what authority I do this. Also letting us know that for us, the place of God is not space or place, but it's in a person. It is in Jesus. And that teaches us also to learn to see the worship of God happens not in an area. Get these sinners out of here. They're defiling our area. It happens where people are. That we can worship God in the vicinity of others. Because Jesus has taught us that as we do to the least of these, we do also to him. So to conclude, we have in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew What was in man? (laughs) Oh, he knew all right. It's why he came.